welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Amen, amen. Hey, if you have your Bible, please open it up to Ephesians 1. We're going to start in verse 15 in just a couple moments. We're continuing on in our series called Blessed as we just began last week walking through uh, Ephesians, and we're going to be spending quite a long time in Ephesians. There's actually three different series that we're going to compile. All of these are uh, just unpacking just the, the riches that we see specifically in this letter uh, in, in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, and this series is called Blessed. So, I want to just address one thing really quickly. So I had a conversation yesterday actually with Nick. Where's Nick? There's Nick. Raise your hand, Nick. We, we want you to be seen. Raise your hand. He's right there, by the way. He's right there. And uh, so last night we had this amazing event here at the church. I'm going to light you up, Nick, just so you know. Um, so we had this amazing event at the church last night called the Magic of Music. And, and, and Michael, would you and your family please stand up? You and Christopher, you guys are here. You guys did an amazing job. Danielle is not here, but you guys did a fantastic job. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can have a seat. They did such a good job that Nick was actually going to talk to you, Michael, to see if there was some sort of illusion that you could create in me to make my sermon shorter. And just as you said last night, everything that you did was an illusion, and you said that you didn't work miracles. Well, I think it may be a miracle that actually would make my sermon shorter, too. So just so you know, Nick, it's not happening. So love you, brother. Uh-huh. Hey, so last week we, we did start unpacking this idea of what it means to be blessed. And that can be a complicated even idea because we use the word bless in different ways in our culture that really confuse us as to what it means maybe to, to see that how God entails for us to understand this word to be blessed. Think about it in this way. When, when you hear somebody say, bless it, they're really saying something else, aren't they? They're going to say, oh, bless it, and then they're mad and they say it. They're really saying something else. They say the word bless, and it kind of it gets a little confusing. When I lived in the South, people would just say, bless your heart, and I don't know if you know this or not. That doesn't mean bless your heart. <laughs> that means you're in trouble, you don't know it, and you're not smart enough to even figure it out along the way. That's basically what that means, bless your heart, and, and you just have to do that. Or we get even more confused because we say bless you after somebody sneezes, and then it's like, you know, God bless you. And like, I, I know why we do that. At least I think historically I know why we do that. Actually, that originated around the time of 590 AD. I have a lot of time on my hands, about 590 AD. I verified this on the internet with a website called Straight Dope. So I'm thinking this is a valid source. I'm just, I just ran with it because I saw it. So there was apparently a Pope, Pope Gregory the First in 590. There was a plague in the time. And then the Pope, being the Pope, doing whatever Popes do, other than wear cool hats, they, they knew and they just kind of sensed that if somebody was sneezing, they were probably going to die. So it's like they'd sneeze and be like, you're dying, God bless you. So they would say it right over there just as a little blessing. So I think that's actually true. At least it's close to true. You can talk to me later if it's not. But anyway, that was uh, from Straight Dope. So again, reliable source. But we get confused too when somebody sneezes because not all sneezes are created equally, are they? Because, huh, oh, you're feeling that, aren't you? Sometimes it's like when somebody sneezes and it's like a squeaky sneeze, you know, it's like they're going to sneeze and they go, and you're like, you don't know, like, did they, they didn't full on sneeze. So do you say God bless you? Because they held back. And then you're like, I don't know, maybe you need to pray for them because maybe there's something that happened inside when that happened. It's like, there's all sorts of things 
that, that we have to come to terms with it as, as it is with this. Or if somebody is just a silent sneeze, so you know the sneeze is building up. I, I'm talking a lot about sneezing. They're like, you know the sneeze is building up, and maybe you're in a conversation, and their eyes are watering like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And they don't even do the, the, the squeaky thing. They just go, and they just hold it in. And you're like, God bless you. I don't know. I don't know what to do. You're probably seeing stars right now. Or maybe what's even worse is the shower sneeze. And that's the worst. Because you're close, you're in a riveting conversation, and somebody's just like out of control, and they sneeze, and it's the shower all over you. And you're like, I don't know. You want to say bless it. You want to say bless your heart. You want to say it all. And you don't even know what to say. And then they sneeze, and it goes all over you. And you're like, all I need is Purell and Jesus. That's what I need right now to survive. It can be confusing because when we use the word bless or blessed, we don't always know what it means biblically. We kind of hijack it within our culture to make it mean different things. And what the Apostle Paul unpacked uh, in specifically in last week's message uh, that, that we talked about from Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3 through verse 14 is the Apostle Paul unpacked this reality that if you're a child of God, you're blessed. And he used these words to convey the message that you're blessed because you're, you're predestined to, to do great things, that you're chosen to be saved, that you are marked, um, that your, your life is marked, that you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. And he would use all of these, these deeply theological words in a, in a way to say that you are indeed are blessed that your life is set apart. And he would use this word right out of the gate in verse 1 and 2. And he would use this word saints to say that you are people who are called out. And that you are to be the hagios, the holy ones. That you are to be living lives that stand out from the rest of the world around you. So the Apostle Paul starts with that and he continues now in this passage in verse 15, continuing the same idea. And we'll read right through verses uh, 15 through 23. If you have a Bible, um, let's read it together. For this reason, so he's connecting the two ideas, what was talked about in previous uh, verses. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably pow great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above... All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The Apostle Paul, he, he begins in verse 15. And he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
We're going to divide this talk, if you're an outliner like I am, we're going to divide it in two different ways this morning. And the first one begins with this, Paul's praise of them. Paul is praising the the church in Ephesus. He knows them very well, and he praises them. Notice what he says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I want you to know, first and foremost, the Apostle Paul knows the people in Ephesus. It is great to be known by people, and it's great to be known by God. And the church in Ephesus, they had a faith that was rooted in Jesus Christ. He was the cornerstone of their, of, of their faith, and the Apostle Paul knew that well. He knew those people well. Within the church in Ephesus, there's no big pressing issue like in some of the other letters that Paul would write. This is just one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this letter and some others while he's in, on, in home arrest in Rome. Uh, home arrest is, is not like what we would have here. He didn't, you know, have a, a low jack on his ankle, and if he leads the house and his parole officer's coming and the law is following, you know, it's not one of those deals. But he's under house arrest, so he could have visitors. But yet, the Apostle Paul knew the course of his life. He knew what was going to happen because he was willing to stand up against the Roman authority or any other authority because he believed so deeply in the message of Jesus Christ. And he had brought this message to several people, and he knew the church in Ephesus well. The Apostle Paul has recorded there's three different times that he actually visited Ephesus. And in each one of those times, he spent a different amount of time there. Not to be confusing, but to give you a little deeper cut into the Bible, if you were to go into the book of Acts, you would see that the Apostle Paul took three main missionary journeys. And he took some smaller ones too. But he took three main missionary journeys. And on the second missionary journey was the first time the Apostle Paul went into Ephesus. He went in to to connect with the people. We don't know for sure how long he was there. But what we know is that he began to know the people and to begin to know them very well. So the time frame, and and again, this is not 100% uh, verifiable, but it's believed that this would have been in fall of the year 52, A.D. 52. And this would have been early in the secondary missionary uh, journey of Paul when he goes to Ephesus. And again, we don't know much about his stay. All we know is uh, Luke, the author, uh, the one who got inspired to author both the Gospel of Luke and also Acts, that Luke recorded that Paul was in Ephesus in most likely a short time, possibly a week, maybe a month. But again, I said Paul made, he made three visits. The second visit was on his third missionary journey around the Mediterranean Rim. And this was just a short time after this, and possibly the spring of 53, of the year 53. And on this visit, Paul spent more time, and he actually was, uh, he was more deeply ingrained within the culture there. He taught in the synagogue for three months, and we also know that he was teaching daily in a lecture hall of a, of a gentleman who owned the lecture hall, and his name was Tyrannus. And the Apostle Paul, he, he, preached and he, he, he preached and he taught, but he taught within that lecture hall for around two years. 
So he would have been so ingrained in what was happening in Ephesus at the time. He would have known of all of the gods and goddesses that they were worshiping, that they were attempting to to be blessed by their own efforts. He would have known full well about about the the, the power of of darkness that was over the area of, of Ephesus because of the temple that was there that they worshiped. He would have known about the goldsmiths there that were that were, they were offended later in Paul's ministry of bringing the gospel to Ephesus, he would have known about the goldsmiths who were offended that Paul brought the message there because when Paul brought the message, and the goldsmith was creating idols, and it was quite a moneymaker. And now the gospel goes into, into Ephesus, and now people are turning away from their false gods, and they're turning away from the idols, so therefore the goldsmith is making less money. So not only is there a spiritual disruption, there's a financial disruption. Paul would have known very well in the training that he had how to combat what he was seeing in that time. But I believe one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, and starting in verse 1, or excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 1, when he talks about how every Christian has been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I believe the reason why he, that he started there is he wanted them to not identify with people of Ephesus. He wanted them to identify with their relationship based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wanted it to use all of those words that were mentioned last week. He wanted to use the words to express this blessing that they had so they didn't have to go chase the blessing through the temple of Artemis that they didn't have to chase the blessing through the worship of other gods and idols and goddesses. He, he didn't want them to have to, to waste their money to, to go to, uh, to the, the goldsmith to create more gold so they could have another idol. You see, they didn't know the true God, and they were just grasping at straws for a blessing. And the Apostle Paul, I believe, he began this whole letter by telling them that they are chosen in him, that they're blameless in him, that they're holy in him, that they're predestined by him, that that God loves them, that they're adopted as his sons and daughters of almighty God. And he wants them to be reminded that they are children of God, and that is indeed where their identity comes from. Because Around Ephesus, there were all sorts of ways that people could be conjured into false identities. Welcome to the United States of America. It is no different. Maybe just worse. We have so many temptations for us to base our identity on our profession, on how much money we have stored away for a retirement fund or a 401k or where we work or who we work with or a social strata or who our grandparents are or who our dad is or the neighborhood we live in or how many kids we have or how holy we try to present ourselves. And all of these things are rubbish in the eyes of God. All of these things are like trying to build a house on a foundation that is deeply cracked. And foolishly, the the, the foundation is so cracked and there's weeds growing through it because of neglect. And yet, it's foolish to think that we can just build a house upon that, that it's going to last through the storms of life. 
The Apostle Paul is trying to convey to them, and I believe to us today, that our identity has to be set upon the foundation of Christ because it is that foundation that will allow us to weather the storms of this day and every other day that has preceded our life up till this point and also things in the future. So we have every spiritual blessing. The Apostle Paul, his third time of connecting with uh, the people of Ephesus was actually with the Ephesian elders in an area called Miletus. And that was spring of 57. So a span of about five, four or five years, he's had this connection, this deep connection with the church. And just so we, we have some sort of historical understanding, Paul most likely wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus potentially in the year 60 to 62. So just a couple years after when he met them and developed a relationship with them, spending some years with them, getting to know them, loving on them, and sharing with them. The Apostle Paul, again, is on house arrest, and I love what he said in Romans 14, 7 and 8. He said this not only about his own life, but also the life of every single follower of Jesus. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live in the Lord And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And what's amazingly true about this to me is the Apostle Paul, he not only is just talking about something, he lived this message. Someone who the Holy Spirit of God inspired to author several letters that would actually be put into the canon, the standard of Scripture in the New Testament, that the Apostle Paul, he writes these things not from a position of like his life is all figured out and his life is easy. Instead, he writes many of these letters from a prison or a prison-like situation on home arrest. You see, believers immediately receive all the blessing of their inheritance upon salvation. God is not waiting to give you what he is already promised to give you through your inheritance. He's not waiting to give you those things. He already has given you those things. We simply need to live our lives and possess the things that he's given. God is not trying to play games with you or I. He wants us to live lives that are surrendered to him so therefore we can prove worthy of the purpose, the call, and task at hand. Because when we surrender ourselves to God, it proves to God we're not going to live under our our own flesh and our own power and our own ability, but instead we're going to humble ourselves before Him, trusting that He's going to lift us up and empower us, what we need to get through life. Paul knew the church in Ephesus. He knew them well. Again, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, he says, and then in verse 17, he says, and I keep asking that the God of of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and, and revelation so that what? You may know him better. That you may know him better. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your, your walk with Jesus should be different. It should be identifiably different than five years ago. 
If Listen to me, church. I, I love you. I'm not saying this because I'm mad at you. I'm not saying this because I'm condemning your life. I'm just saying if you're still reciting the same worn-out verses that you recited five years ago and you haven't recited them because you've had new revelation, then you're not doing what it is that God wants you to do in that moment because you need to get to know him better. Sure, are those verses that you learned five years ago true? Yes and amen, they are. But if you're still reciting them from who you were five years ago and you're not allowing the Spirit of God to give you wisdom and revelation in this day and age, you're lacking what you need to live in this day and age. And it's not because God doesn't have it on offer, it's because you haven't actually received what He's offered. He's saying to the church in Ephesus, He's like, I, I want, I'm saying these things. So you get to know the Lord better. You see, we, we can be in different stages at different times. I'm going to talk about this from two different perspectives. We can be in, in different stages at different times. That's true. We, like my spiritual walk, can be totally different than yours. I can be in a spiritual low while you're at a spiritual high, and then that can change, like that can drastically change in a short amount of time. Amen. And I wish that were not so, but that, that, that is true. So we need one another. And we need to be known by one another. I want to be close enough to you, and you need to be close enough to me that when I'm going through a spiritual low, you know it. And in that moment, you step into my life, whether I give you permission or not, and you encourage me because you see I'm on a spiritual low. You don't wait, but you see, you see me in a spiritual low and avoid me until I get to a spiritual high. While I'm in a spiritual low and you're in a spiritual low, we need to go to you in that moment because if we love you, that's what love requires. And love's messy, is it not? But we need to be known by one another and we need to know one another. We can be in different stages at different times. But also... We, even within ourselves, we can be in different stages at different times. I can have one area of my life where I'm spiritually soaring, and I can have another area of my life where I'm actually spiritually deficient. Have you guys noticed that too? Where it seems like everything's great. Maybe my relationship with Marla is great. My relationship with the kids is great. Everything's great. Relationship with you is great. And yet something else nags and then the sin is kind of creeps in. And then I can be spiritually soaring in another area. And I can be spiritually deficient in another. And I, I want to give you some news. You can too. Because when you're, when you're at a spiritual high, you're not a spiritual high for all things. We're more complicated than that. I love the way that one author puts it, Robert Mulholland Jr. He said this, and I actually put this in your worship guide, the full quote, and then I'll break it down uh, and elaborate on what he says because I love the way that he breaks down this spiritual journey. And I believe that it will be a helpful way for us to look at these, these four things for us to, to grasp maybe where we are in a spiritual walk, not only from the 10,000-foot level, but getting into the weeds of our life to maybe realize that there's some areas, specific areas that we need to, to surrender to God. But Robert Mulholland, he says this. He says, the movement can also describe the more particular path we experience in any given area of our unlikeness to Christ. God calls us out of that unlikeness, where he calls awakening, and moves us to an increasingly relinquishment of that unlikeness. He calls purgation. I also call cleansing. This leads to a new structure of being and doing. He calls illumination. 
and eventually culminates in Christ's likeness of spirit and behavior at that particular point of our life, which he calls union. So I'll break this down a little further. I see some of your eyes glossing over. You're like, using words I don't understand. We're going to hope to understand these a little better. What Mulholland says, and I believe that there's, there's some truth here. He identifies the first thing, and if you're filling in blanks, the first thing would be, or the next thing along the line would be the word awakening. An awakening is this. It occurs whenever we encounter and respond to God because of our sinfulness. We have, a, our first spiritual awakening is in accordance with 2 Corinthians 4.4, and it says that we were once blind, and then God allows us to have spiritual sight. So all of us are born spiritually blind, and then God, through the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, allows us to have spiritual sight. And the first spiritual sight we have is this. It's compounded with uh, realizing our sinfulness and also realizing God's holiness and our need for salvation. This is the first awakening that all of us have if we are indeed Christians. It's the moment, the realization that I'm a sinner. It's, it's what happened to me at the age of 21, sitting on the left side in a pew in a, in a Methodist church in Jacksonville, Florida, when I was just about to, to leave to go on deployment. And as a new father, and, and when the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I have no idea, bless the preacher, have no idea what he was preaching that day. All I know is the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I got up out of my pew, and I walked forward, and I was a blubbering mess, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew I needed a Savior. That was my first awakening, but I've had, and, and if you're in Christ, you've had a lot of other awakenings along the way. Not that you need to be saved over and over and over, but when God shows you sinfulness in your life that needs to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. So this awakening is not just a one-time thing, it is a continual thing. The spiritual journey is a continual journey because we continue to walk in this life and still struggle with the flesh. We still struggle with the evil one. And we still struggle with what the Apostle John would call the world or the ways of the world. The second thing after awakening is this. It's cleansing. This is dealing particularly with the area of our life that is unlike Christ. At first, this may, after the awakening part, this, this may begin with refusal of our sins. It may begin with that, that we have this awakening and God shows us through the power of the Spirit, hey, this, this needs to change in your life. And it could be that he, He's given you that awakening and there's no cleansing yet because the first thing you did was say, God, no, that's, that's, I'm not giving that to you. I want to be mad. I want to I withhold forgiveness. I want to be mad at those people. I can't believe what my boss did to me. My ex-wife, my ex-husband, uh-uh, I'm not forgiving them. Because if I forgive them, I give them power. Oh, that's just so evil, folks. That's just so evil. That's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. You actually gain power when you learn how to forgive. As a matter of fact, unforgiveness clogs your life, I think, like nothing else. It not only clogs your life, but then that unforgiveness, it grows and spreads into other areas of your life, too. So first, it may begin with refusal of sins, but then at some point, if you're to be cleansed of your sins, it's not only, it's not only the realization that you have sinned or there's some sinful deed in your life, 
but it's come to terms with the reality that something needs to be done because of it. So then it's coming to trust Jesus more and relinquish that desire. And with that, you get a deeper understanding of the weight and consequence of your sins. But also there's illumination. The illumination. This is when you emerge as a new man or woman in Christ. Jot these references down. I don't have time to share them all with you, but I have several passages, and some of them by the Apostle Paul speaks into this emerging as a new person. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Ephesians 4, 24. Colossians 3, 10. Or 1 John 5, 4. This is when somebody emerges out and they become, they're living out the reality of the gospel and their life is changing and they're not only a new person on the inside, they're also a new person on the outside. Other people are noticing that change. They're noticing the, the peace that surpasses all understanding. They're noticing what's going on around you. You have a spiritual aura around you. I don't mean that in a worldly sense. I mean that in the Holy Spirit sense. Like there is something that has marked your life that is different because you're a new person in Christ. And you've changing. And the last is union. And this is when you experience inner peace. You're just experiencing inner peace. That even, even though the world around you may be chaotic, you sit in the middle of it with the peace that surpasses all understanding. In accordance with, with Philippians 4, 7. And you sit in the middle of it and you don't have answers, but you have God, and that's enough. That's union. I love how he explains those things. You see, the church in Ephesus, you would think by what the Apostle Paul is saying and how well he would know them in the time that he spent there, you would think that they would just continue on to be just this blessed church. Fast forward a couple decades into Revelation 2, 2 through 5. The Apostle Paul knew this church, and now some time has passed, and now there's another apostle, John, who writes decades later, and he writes about the church in Ephesus. I briefly, briefly mentioned this last week. There's seven churches that are mentioned in the beginning of Revelation. It's before Revelation becomes all apocalyptic, and it just kind of gets, gets weird. So he, it's very practical, very straightforward in the beginning. And the first church to be addressed is the church in Ephesus. It's because it was the, the largest church, and it was the city center, and it was, it, was the, it was where the Roman roads began. So most likely, all of the seven letters, they actually began at the church in Ephesus. So it would have began at Ephesus, and most scholars believe that, they, that those letters were just circulated all through the seven churches. But the church in Ephesus got the first letter, and this is what was said about the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. 
You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Transition. Yet, I hold this against you, God says. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. How could a church that started out so well that the Apostle Paul knew that he was encouraging, he was reminding them of their, uh, their identity, and he would continue and build on that. He would talk about the value, that they're blessed, that they're together, and, they're, and that they're living victoriously. How in the world could just a couple decades later, now there's, Jesus is threatening this church, and he says, if you don't get it right, I'm going to snuff out the lampstand. You're actually not even going to be known as a church anymore. How can that be? Oh, well, the scripture tells us you have forsaken your first love. And you know that that's something we're still in danger of. Churches can easily get ingrown and become about their name or their denomination or their friends and miss the fact that a church is to be on mission. We're to be the most inviting people on planet Earth. That for us, we should never just see our seat as our seat. We should always be willing to give our seat to a stranger that they might become a friend and part of the family of God. And that we should never be stingy about what we have. We should be generous about what we have, especially with those who we do not even recognize as being part of the family of God. Because a church can become very ingrown and they can easily become a group of people that miss out on their first love. The love of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, a community formed around Jesus and just the, the beautiful gospel that he's, he's given us in his care. We can easily bypass his first love and become ingrained and ingrown and it just be about us and we would be no better than the church in Ephesus and God could in a generation, in a decade, in a, in a day, in a year, he could easily snuff out our lampstand and there's weeds growing out in front of our yard and our, our parking lot has more weeds than it does right now and we will be a place that people used to go to find hope and God can remove his lampstand just the same way that he was starting to do it to the church in Ephesus. You may say, well, Pastor, how do we get out of this? I love what John said in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. He said this. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children... He continues in verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. I'm going to have to go quickly as we finish here. First part of the passage identified Paul knew them. He's praising them. The second part is Paul's prayer for them. Paul's prayer for them. Notice in the original passage, he goes through and he says this in verse 
uh, 16, he says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of the Lord may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious riches of his of the glorious riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he received him from he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So let's break this, this passage down. Jesus gives hope in a hopeless world. Jesus gives hope in a hopeless world. When we live out the, the love where we keep Jesus as, as our first love and we remember uh, that we're to be growing in our, our walk and love for God and also growing in our walk and love for other people, when we do these things, God will give us a plentiful supply of hope. You see, the world keeps spinning and looking for ways to make sense of the chaos and brokenness in the world. Through social engineering and political engineering and in our manipulation and all other means, grasping for hope. But it's like what one person said, it's like trying to raise the Titanic from its resting place at the bottom of the ocean and expecting it to rise again. Or as I would say, it's like buying a Cubs jersey and expecting them to win another World Series in the next hundred years. I love you, Cub fans. I know. That wasn't the Bible. That was just me. You could probably tell, though. Back to the word. Verse 18 says this. Jesus generously shares the riches of his glorious inheritance in this spiritually bankrupt cultural moment. Jesus generously shares the riches of his glorious inheritance in this spiritually bankrupt moment. You see, culturally, we've tried to emulate movie stars and rock stars. In the 80s, we tried to get our way through the moral majority. Some of you remember that. We've tried to vote in our political saviors. We tried to, to trust in technological advances to give us more hope. We've done it through the internet, increased tech, through AI now. We tried to trust the science. How well did that work out? And bluntly, we've tried to eat, drink, and be merry, but we ended up drunk, broke, and sad. Might I remind you of your inheritance, the inheritance the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus that I'll remind you of again from the Word of God. Part of our inheritance is that we're blessed by God, that we're chosen by God, we're redeemed by God, we're marked by God, we're empowered by God, and we're adopted by God as children of God. Also, Jesus provides his incomparable power for us who believe. This taken right from verses 19 through 21. And I want you to know this. Again, the grasping at power. We've tried power through social connections, social engineering, military might, political 
ideologies, through knowledge, through status. And in every way, what we've done is we've actually diluted the power that was available to us. But the power that God has available, the incomparable power, is never diluted by use. It's never diluted by use. It just simply gets multiplied over and over and over in someone's life. People ask me all the time, said, I, you know, and they say, well, would you rather live in, in this time or in another time? And when I was studying for this message, I was reminded of actually songs to a secular band that I used to listen to in the 90s when I used to ride skateboards. It was quite a time, as you can imagine. And the name of the secular band is, is called Jesus Jones, and this is the, the line from one of the most popular songs. It says, right here, right now, there's no other place that I want to be. Right here, right now, watching the world wake up from history. You see, I want to know the power that the Apostle Paul talks about. I want to know of what's offered the first thing I probably should have shared from verse 17, I want to know that the offer of spiritual wisdom, the offer of, of a spirit of wisdom and revelation in this world of skepticism and cynicism. You know, for us as, as people, I think of this, this analogy, you see, sometimes we think and we tend to believe that just because things are murky, that they're deep. Like, for instance, if you ever go to, if you've ever been to the ocean on one day, you could go to the ocean where the water is crystal clear and you can see it and it's inviting and you can just walk in the beach and you just look and it's just inviting and you don't even really care about the actual depth of it because it looks so inviting because it's so clear. On the other hand, on a day where there's, the tides are coming in and the water is churned and you go in, and if the water is just a little bit murky, it appears deep. What I've tried to present to you today is just the Word of God in a very crystal clear way, an inviting way, in a way that cuts through all of the cynicism and skepticism that's, that's characterizing this cultural moment. I'm trying to... to help you to know the God who can bring about revelation and understanding, who offers power and hope, inheritance. Do you know him? Are you known by him? Are you known by his people? Would you stand so I can pray for you?